Amen. Well, we come now to a time of looking at God's Word together this morning. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Esther, looking at chapter 2. It'll also be on the screen as I read it out for us. So Esther, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahaskaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai Mordecai had commanded her, 
for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we come now to God's word, let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Perhaps some of us have been very busy this morning shoveling snow and the like. Or there may be other distractions that are in our mind. Let's take a moment to uh, be still and quiet, prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from God's Word. We live in such a distracted world. Let's get ready to concentrate for just a few minutes. Our Lord God, we do pray that you'd help us to um, hear what it is that you have to say to each of us this morning. We pray that we would understand it. And we pray, Lord, that having understood, it wouldn't just have an impact on our lives, Lord, but you would help us to use what we've heard uh, for the good of those around us, those that we have responsibility for. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, friends, if you would uh, go ahead and keep uh, your Bible open to Esther chapter 2. Help me as we go through this. Remember, it is a story, so we won't obviously be going through it verse by verse, but it will be good for you to have uh, the flow of the story in your mind, and having the Bible open will certainly help with that. This is a most extraordinary book, isn't it? And... Uh, We looked at how extraordinary it is uh, last week. But this, this part of the story, this chapter, is even more remarkable, I think. You may remember that uh, last week we looked at how God is in charge even when he doesn't seem to be. Uh, That God is um, sovereign even when he doesn't seem to be. Even when his name is not mentioned. He's still in charge. And we saw the remarkable remarkable way that was worked out in the story with the feast and the laughter. The idea that anyone else could possibly be in charge. It's an extraordinary story. And yet this week, it's even more remarkable. And uh, so I've been thinking through how to bring that out for us. Uh, it's because, of course, uh, that's my job is to try and bring out the truth here so that we can see it and feel it and hear it. Um, I've been leaning on the image that Jesus uses in the New Testament. See, what, what is going on here is there's a, um, a corollary to the main theme. The, the theme of the book is God is in charge even though he doesn't seem to be. 
But there's a corollary to that, a, a therefore to that. God is in charge, even though when he doesn't seem to be. Therefore, what? And for many of us, uh, the therefore can be um, passive. God's in charge, therefore I don't need to do much. Uh, God's in charge, uh, therefore it's up to him. He's sovereign. But what Esther is saying, and it's another theme that is throughout the book and is introduced in this chapter, is that God is in charge even when he doesn't seem to be, even when his name is not mentioned. Therefore, we need to take responsibility. That's how the Bible thinks about the doctrine of God's sovereignty. A wrongly tuned doctrine of God's sovereignty can lead to passivity, not doing anything. But in the Bible... Uh, Paul talks about it uh, this way. Uh, he, he says, work out our, we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us to will and act according to his good purpose. God's at work and therefore we need to be at work. Or he says, I wrestle with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. God's powerfully at work in me. Therefore, I'm wrestling with that energy of his. God is in charge, therefore, I need to take responsibility. As I say, it's, it's a particularly remarkable way that is worked out in this passage, indeed, unnerving way. And I've been, I've been leaning on the image of Jesus uh, to help us with this. Uh, Jesus, when he's uh, teaching his disciples how to live in a time of exile, how to, how to live when the society around you is not predominantly Christian, which will be the normal experience of his disciples because Christians do not and never have lived in a theocracy. The theocracy is Old Testament Israel and the new heaven and the new earth to come. In the meantime, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, he says, when he sends out his disciples into that kind of situation, he says, be innocent as doves, but cunning as snakes. That's Jesus' description. And that, that's a good image for what we see here. Both uh, two main characters in this part of the story, Mordecai and Esther. And that innocent as doves, but cunning as serpents, as snakes. That's a good image for it. And they... they, they one and the other lean to one or other side of that coin, innocent of doves and cunning as serpents, though they both have bits of each, as we shall see. So, first of all, Mordecai. And Mordecai, in this story, comes across as a man of great moral principle. If you like, innocent as a dove. He's going to do what's right. And the first way you see this is that he, he has adopted Esther. Uh, Esther uh, is an orphan. Her father and her mother have died. No other sibling, no brother or sister is mentioned in the story, so it appears that she's utterly alone. And just imagine that for a moment. She's in Persia, in a foreign land, under a pagan king, 
A lot of the other people of Israel have gone back to Jerusalem, but she's still there, and she's utterly alone, without mom or dad, brother or sister. She, she's probably a young teenager. She's very vulnerable. And what does Mordecai do? Well, he's a relative. He steps up. He didn't have to. He, he could have gone to the funeral and given her a handkerchief, mourned with her, sent her some flowers, written her a really nicely worded card. But no. Esther, he mans up. He adopts her. And of course, that's all part of God's sovereignty too. The relationship between Mordecai and Esther is a key weaving of, 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 of uh, God's sovereignty throughout the tapestry of Esther. But, but here it's emphasized the responsibility that he, that he took. Verse 7, it says, He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. She wasn't a baby. She was a teenager. Some of us will know how hard it is to adopt Adopting a teenager can be very difficult. But he did it. It's the right thing to do. So say he comes across as a man of deep, committed moral principle. Same, I think, again, uh, towards the end when there's this plot that Mordecai discovers and then he reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king. Lots of commentators have wrestled with how it is that Mordecai overheard this plot. But you see, Mordecai is there sitting at the king's gate, verse uh, 19, which the reason why he's there is because Esther has now become the queen, and so Mordecai is is in not the inner circle, but, but close. He's watching what's going on. He's right at the king's gate. He wants to be a part of things. And, and many commentators have wondered, why, how on earth is it that uh, he overhears this plot from these uh, eunuchs, as we'll see in a moment why they might be motivated to kill the king. How does he overhear it? And and most commentators say, well, um, uh, they're just a little loose with their talk, and Mordecai overhears. That's possible. More likely, I think, they thought he would be open to being a part of the plot. Why? Esther, his own daughter, has been enslaved by this king. That's what was going on. And you imagine them saying, well, come on, Mordecai. Wouldn't you like to, we've got an idea how we can sort this out. And what does Mordecai do? He tells Esther who tells the king. In other words, he reports the plot against the pagan king, against the man who had enslaved his daughter. As a pious, God-fearing Jew, against the Gentile, he reports the plot. Why? It's the right thing to do. As we'll see as the story unfolds in God's sovereignty, that, that Mordecai did the right thing, innocent as a dove. 
is used by God in profound ways. But there's another side to it here. The uh, cunning as a snake or a serpent or canny, as you might translate that word cunning, canniness, cleverness, wisdom of Esther. It's also really remarkable. Uh, Esther is enslaved, and we have to use that word, she is taken by the king. Of course, she had no choice. When the king of Persia took you to his harem, you, it was not an option. You had to do it. And this, is, this part of the story is so remarkable. I need to bring it out so that we can see it and, and color it and dramatize it so you can see it. And yet, of course, I don't want to be R-rated by it, about it. But there are elements here that, that any of the original readers would have fully understood. She's enslaved, and let's that's, that's, that's be clear. It's sexual slavery. There are, there are all these women who are going to spend one night with this king and then be dismissed to a second harem and never see him again, never be able to have another man throughout their whole life. It's what we call human trafficking. And it still exists today, not just in other countries, but in America, not just in other cities, but in Chicago, not just downtown Chicago, but in the suburbs of Chicago. It exists today. And we have uh, ministries of people involved trying to help such women get out. It's comparable to what Esther was going through, though, of course, different, because in our country, it's illegal to have sexual slavery. And so women can be released. Esther had no such choice. It was the king who enslaved her. What's she going to do? She's very canny. Uh, she follows Mordecai's command not to reveal that she's a Jew, not to reveal that she's a worshiper of God. People, one, one commentator on this says that um, in conclusion, as he observes this, that he says that we should always tell the truth. He says we should, we should never tell an untruth, but we should not always tell the whole truth. Well, I know what he's getting at, and I think of my own role in life as a pastor. Over the years, I've had thousands of conversations with people about deeply sensitive personal things that are fundamentally confidential that I will never reveal. I'll take to my grave. And that's part of what it's, what it's like being a pastor. People tell you all kinds of stuff, and they trust you not to reveal it. And it shapes how you, how you preach, it shapes how you shepherd people, it shapes the way you think about the human condition, 
but I'll never, I'll never reveal it. And so there's something to what that, yeah, we should never tell an untruth, but we shouldn't always tell the whole truth. Yeah, I, I can get that. But I think it's skirting over the complexity. She deceives them. She does. She, she doesn't tell a lie, but she deceives them. It's a very fine line. She's canny. Even more remarkable or unnerving is the way she wins favor, which is sort of emphasized again and again and again, how she wins favor in this, in this, in this passage. Uh, first of all, with the eunuch. Now, to understand how remarkable and indeed unnerving a little bit that would have been for the original readers, you have to understand something of the, uh, who these eunuchs were. So in the ancient world, in Persian Babylonian culture, there were men who made their living out of capturing young boys, forcibly making them eunuchs, and then selling them to aristocratic or royal households. And Herodotus, an ancient historian, tells us about one of the chief eunuchs of uh, this king. Uh, Maybe this man, we don't know for sure. Herodotus uses a different name for him, but names change when you go from language to language. For instance, uh, my name, my first name is Josh. When I was... In, uh, on the mission field in the Republic of Georgia, and I introduced myself to people in Georgia, I would say, you know, hello, my name is, uh, is, is Josh, but they would hear in their language, George, and then the word George is spoken in that language, Georgi, and so in Georgia, I'm Georgi. And I bet if there was an ancient text about it, there'd be scholars wrestling for hundreds of years as to whether it was the same person. It really is. So it may be the same person, maybe not. This chief eunuch of Herodotus' household went with, uh, of um, the king of Persia's household, went with him to um, uh, fight uh, the Greeks in the uh, campaign against the Greeks and discovered the slave trader who had enslaved him when he was a young boy on the way. And he befriended him. And pretended that he was grateful. Look what's happened to me. I'm now the chief eunuch of the whole, of the king of Persia, the, the, the largest empire of the world. How powerful a man I am. And he pretended he was grateful. And took him to the capital, Susa. And plied him with presents. And when he disarmed him, he invited him to his home with his family. And made him make a eunuch of each of his four sons and forced his four sons to make a eunuch of their father. That's what this man is carrying. The anger, the hate, the bitterness. And yet Esther, she wins his favor. It's amazing. even more remarkable, and the text skirts over it. It draws a veil over it, and I will do the same. 
But even more remarkable, when it came to be Esther's turn to spend a night with the king, she won his favor. Innocent as a dove. But canny. Wise. Now, mercifully, you and I don't live in the time of Persian Empire. We live in a democracy where we have great freedom. And yet, as we live in a day that is decreasingly dominated by Christian ideals, all of us will be faced with moral conundrums. Innocent as a dove. I'm going to do the right thing. Yes. Canny, wise. And we have to take responsibility. It reminds me a little bit of um, J.R.R. Tolkien in his uh, Lord of the Rings, the famous moment when Frodo says, I wish I did not live to see times such as these. And Gandalf says, so do I, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not our decision to make. Our decision is what to do with the times that are given to us. God is in charge. Therefore, take responsibility. And Mordecai and Esther do. And of course, on a sequence of remarkable things as we go through the book of Esther, the most remarkable of all, I think, is who the Savior is in Esther. Who's the Savior in Esther? Esther. Jesus, of course, also faced such conundrums, and in his divine brilliance managed to make his way through the world, even through the difficulties that the Pharisees threw at him, their plots and challenging questions. He made his way through all that with no sin. We we cannot say that Esther did not sin, for none of us but Jesus is without sin. But Jesus did it, innocent as a dove, but canny. And indeed, he, as the Bible says, became sin. He took our sin. He who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might have the righteousness of God. And by his power, through his spirit, you can be equipped to take responsibility without it being too big a burden. I find so many of us these days are sort of throwing up our hands in despair. You know, what are you going to do? It's just a disaster. What are you going to do? You know, the the Amish uh, man who was once asked whether he was a Christian, you know what he said? Ask my neighbor. What are you going to do? Love your neighbor. 
Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor. Take responsibility. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only that which is done for Christ will last. I wish, I wish, I wish God would do something about it. I wish he would step up. I wish he would show himself to me. I wish he would make it clear that I should believe in him. You have a responsibility. For this time, for this brief hour of worship, for this sermon, what are you going to do? How are you going to take responsibility? Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we um, thank you for um, this book of Esther. It does seem to us a very extraordinary book. There are parts of it that we find quite unnerving. And yet we thank you, Lord, that your word is real. It describes the real complexities of following you in this life. It's not sentimental or superficial. And we pray, Lord, that as Jesus instructs us, that you would give us uh, the wisdom and the bravery to be innocent as a dove and yet canny, wise to live in this world. And we pray for your power, Lord, your help with our responsibilities, our family, our children, our grandchildren, our homes, our work. Only with your sovereign power can we live as we should. Help us, Lord, to trust that a single act like uh, Mordecai's of adopting a child, a single act of bravery like Mordecai's of standing up for what was right and reporting what was true, that in your sovereignty that can have world-changing consequences. Help us then, Lord, to follow you today and this week. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.